usually uh, I open my sermon with, you know, kind of a funny, cute story or embarrassing or something about myself. But um, some interesting things happened this week. And in light of the Will Smith, we've all been watching Will Smith, right? None of us are living under a rock, you know, been watching that. In light of that, in light of a joke um, that went too far um, and, and led to absurdity, I figured this would be a good thing to, um, to, to open with um, because um, I had someone email me this week that uh, goes to our church, and some of my jokes had hurt them. Um, and I, don't, I won't even say offended because I, this person's not thin-skinned or easily offended or anything like that. It was just made them feel less welcomed here. And so um, I feel obligated to, to kind of address this a little bit. My sense of humor um, hinges on shock value a lot of times. I use a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration, you know, to be funny. Um, and I, and I, I crack jokes often at people or groups of people's expense um, because I think it's funny and, and, and I get a couple laughs. And, and sometimes I don't think about the person who feels like they were targeted by that joke, and that's completely on me. Um, one thing you have to know about me, I only tease my people. Um, I only tease the people that I consider to be, like, in my group. You'll almost never hear me, like, crack jokes about groups that I don't, um, like, uh, relate to. And so sometimes I make fun of evangelical Christians because I consider myself one. And it's, I consider that my team and my group, and so I like to poke fun at them. Because it's like family. We do that in families. You know, we, we, we're brutal to each other, and then someone else says it, and we're like, you want to fight? You know, we'll... We'll beat up somebody for teasing our family, but then we poke fun with it within the family. Most of my jokes when I'm poking fun at, you know, stuffy Christians or, or, or like, uh, you know, Christians who wear, like I do it all the time, Christians who wear the Christian t-shirts and listen to Caleb, I poke fun of those people. If I'm driving down the road and I'm not listening to a book, I'm listening to Caleb. Like that's what I listen to. And then, and I wish, I wish Christian art was better than it is, but I'm gonna listen to that over you know, most other unless there's unless there's something good on oldies '95, then I'm going to listen to '80s music. But other than that, you know, I'm listening to Caleb, and I poke fun of people that listen to Caleb, and I poke fun of Caleb all the time. But I I listen to Caleb, and and so I consider those my people. So it's okay to make fun of them because it is cheesy. And if you like, usually when it, when they start talking and doing the begathons, I do have to change the station. Um, but I do I do love. The music. So, I, so when I poke in front of those people, but if someone doesn't know that about me and they feel like, you know, and that was one of the things that my friend that emailed me was like, I need Caleb. I'm the kind of person that needs that encouragement. And, and you know, I used to listen to garbage and, you know, every now and then I'll go back and it just doesn't make me feel good. So when you attack Caleb, people, I feel like you're attacking me. And I totally get that. It's, it's my sense of humor. I've got this running joke that I've done for years where I make fun of Esther's family's Thanksgiving because my family has the exact same meal every single year. And it was, and, and Esther's actually made it way better. It used to be like stovetop stuffing, boxed mashed potatoes, a dry turkey, cranberry sauce, like, and it never changed for my whole life. And Esther's family like did a different meal every year. And I, I've always said, you know, they do a different meal every year because they don't love Jesus. And, you know, and it's total exaggeration. I don't mean it, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's the way my humor works. And so, I, I tease people, and, and sometimes I, even when I'm not making jokes, I speak in hyperbole a lot. I, I've got a standard thing I do in the kids' league where I tell everybody it's all about the kids. Most of us are way too old 
to impact the kingdom of God or make a difference in this world, which is why we invest in kids. I don't actually mean that. I hope you're making a difference for Jesus until the day you die. And, and sometimes the way we make a difference is to invest in kids. But I, I don't, like, uh, Esther, I don't know who was here several months ago now, but I was watching some Maverick City music video on YouTube, and it's, you know, black people and white people and, and Middle Eastern people and Mexican people all worshiping God together. And there's this beautiful picture of unity, everybody worshiping God. And I was like, ah, oh, see, this is what real unity looks like to Esther. And she, la- she looked at it for a half a second. We're like, nope, no kids and no old people. I was like, whoa, you're so right. And I came in and told everybody that that Sunday. I was like, man, I'm so glad, you know, Sheila's here. I'm so glad we have experience here. And, uh, and even though we lean into the kids hard and I make, you know, exaggerated statements about, how, I hope you know that I don't feel like any of you are too old to, to follow Jesus and make a difference for Jesus. I, I exaggerate for the sake of making a point often. And I never want to make you feel like, um, like you're not important. That, that's never my heart. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I even cracked a joke uh, last week about uh, animals. Um, it was actually in a relationship class that I was talking about how our brains form. And we have kind of three different brains. The brain stem where our, like, immediate fight or flight and some of our baser sensory stuff happens. They call the reptilian brain. And ours is structured almost the exact same as an alligator's, only their brain doesn't go any farther than that. They just have that piece. And then on top of that, you have the limbic cortex, which they call the mammalian brain. And most mammals have a limbic cortex. Dogs are considerably developed, which is why they, see, they have a full range of emotions like we do. They, because that are, all of our emotions come from that limbic cortex. It's also why dogs help comfort us. Because you can see they don't have the language base, because that comes from the cerebral cortex, but they do experience emotion, and so a lot of times it's, it's, uh, you can self or co, co-regulate your emotions by petting a dog, and, and they comfort you and because they, and, and it, it does something to your limbic cortex when it kind of syncs up with their limbic cortex. And theirs is shaped very similar to ours. So you've got the reptilian brain on top of that, you have the limbic cortex, very similar. And then on top of that, you have the cerebral cortex, which primates, monkeys and things, have a small one, but we're the only ones with a fully developed frontal cortex, which is where we get reasoning and logic and language and blah, blah. Well, I was telling them about that, and I was like, dogs have a limited cortex, so they can sense a lot of emotions, but they're still not family, so don't put them in the family pictures. And blah, blah, blah. You know, I was totally joking. Every big family picture we do, my son and daughter-in-law's dogs are in it, you know. Um, and, and, uh, and I know a lot of people see their dogs as, as family. I've never been able to be one of those people, and I consider that my deficiency, not other people, so I poke fun, but for the most part... Um, yeah, I, I love animals. I, I cry when I kill the animals I raised to kill. Like, I still cry when I do it. Like, it's, it's, uh, uh, so, um, but I say that to say, um, this is, this is how it's supposed to work. Um, I, I'm so glad this person didn't come up on stage and smack me and we have to sort that out. You know, that is not how it's supposed to work. Um, I say all the time, I mean, Judy, gives me a hard time all the time for my language and my, you know, I don't tuck my shirt in on Sunday mornings. And, you know, I used to teach in a t-shirt almost. Yeah. And, and early in the church, Judy every week was, was, uh, uh, was on me. And I, I, I remember talking to her one time. I don't know if you remember this. I said, two things you have to know. Number one, I will probably never change any of that. Like, and number two, I need you to keep pushing on me. Like, even though I may never change, I need that tension in my world, going, hey, some people do it different. Some people believe Sunday is, is, is the day you bring your best to the, to the, to the Lord. 
Um, and, and even though it's a small symbolism, it's a symbolism to dress nice and say, I'm going to be in the house of God. I need that in my life. I need that presence pulling on me too, not just, and, and Judy is one of my closest people, and, she, uh, and she's always pulling on me in another direction. Even though she knows I'm stubborn, I'm probably never going to change, I need that. I need that voice in there as well. And so this is how it's supposed to work. I, I say all the time, I don't want this just to be my ideas and my, you know, uh, you can come here and believe different than me. You don't have to agree with me. Blah, blah. But since I get the stage most of the time, there's a tendency for my ideas to be the primary ideas that go out. And I can't know that those are hurting people if you don't tell me. Like, and, so, and, and, and when you do, I want to give that voice. I want to say, we have a plenty of people in our church that love Caleb, and, and that's, I love those people, and I'm glad they do. We have plenty of people that put dogs in their family pictures. I'm, I still don't think you should mess with Thanksgiving dinner. But everything else, everything else is, is up for grabs, and I want to be able to give you a voice in that thing. So don't hesitate to let me know, hey, you know, I felt like you were singling me out. I felt like you hurt my feelings, or I felt like you, I mean, Donnelly and I had an argument over a T-shirt years ago, and our relationship got closer because of it. Like, I really do want to be, you know, a family of people that can talk about things like this. So please, please, please let me know, uh, because this is how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to tell me when, when you have a grievance, and I address it. And I have no trouble coming up and saying, hey, I was out of line. I said something dumb. Half the time, I don't even think about it. It just comes out of my mouth, and then I'm, like, shocked that I said it. Um, that's kind of how my mouth works. It runs on its own. And then, uh, so I crack a joke all the time about every time I see Esther cry, I just assume I said something stupid. You know, that's not really a joke. <laughs> like usually when someone's offended, I'm like, what did I say? That's on me. I'm sure I said something stupid. It's kind of how I work. So, um, so please don't hesitate to, to let me know if I say something that offends you, um, because, uh, I have no problem coming up and saying I'm sorry. And that, in this one, it's kind of weird because I, <laughs> I even, email back this person, I, I almost hesitate to say that I apologize, because when I apologize, I want to do different. I like, I want to change it, and <laughs> I don't think I'm going to change. I've reached that point where that's going to be tough. And so I don't even know if it's an apology as much as an explanation, and, and maybe uh, a game plan for how we go forward. If I say something offensive, by all means, text me, email me, let me know, um, because I don't want to hurt anybody, that's for sure. That part I can apologize for. I don't want to hurt anybody. So I don't want to make anybody feel outside or separate. Um, this is, you know, family talk, and, and we uh, and I tend to, you know, if a lot of people, it's kind of funny because I, I can be brutal with my kids. They can be brutal with me. We teach, tease each other all the time. Then I'll be with somebody else, and they'll say something to their kid, kind of rough. I'm like, whoa, hold on, that's what's mean. You know, just that, but that's their dynamic. That's how they flow. And so I want to have that here that, that you guys know when I'm kidding. And if you do not know that it was a joke, man, don't hesitate to ask, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll explain myself. Okay, so since there's no time for a story, um, let's jump in. This is our fifth week of Lent, um, so next week is Palm Sunday. Uh, and for those of you um, counting, uh, 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 if, if you're counting the weeks, next week is our sixth week, which is Palm Sunday. Uh, and if you did not hear last week's message for Palm Sunday, it may be worth going back and listening, because I did a lot of historical research going into that week. Um, and it, it kind of changed the, the context of, um, of Palm Sunday a little bit, especially my perspective of Palm Sunday, and then the way the rest of Holy Week kind of played out. And so it may be worth going back and listening to it, because I may build on that um, a little bit this week. And since uh, 
since I don't want to have to retell all of that and wind up with a two-hour sermon, um, you may want to listen first. Amen? Yeah, I'll get an amen out of that one, I figured. Um, well, this week we're going to be um, in one of my favorite Pauline books in the Scripture, uh, because this is maybe Paul at his most affectionate. Um, this is Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, and there was a closeness between Paul and this church that was just different than him and a lot of other churches. Paul had um, come through a season of real kind of ministry dryness um, that only takes three verses to read, uh, but there's actually a lot there. So we're going to read them. This is Acts 16, verses 6 to 8. It says, Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the areas of uh, Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had preventing, prevented him from preaching the word in the providence of Asia at that time. Uh, then, coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north to the providence of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. And then while Paul's there, he has this uh, kind of um, vision, this dream that led him onward. But have you ever felt like completely and utterly lost in the midst of your purpose? And what I mean is that you felt like you know what you're supposed to do. Um, you just cannot at all figure out where or how. Like, and, and it just feels like you're just stuck and nothing is, is moving. I mean, on Paul's first missionary journey, he just bounced from town to town to town. Uh, and his reception wasn't always great. Like he, he sometimes got a lot of pushback and people were, uh, were not receiving the gospel. But he never questioned like where he was supposed to go next. He just went to the next town and, and found a synagogue, preached the gospel. Went to the next town, found a synagogue, preached the gospel. Um, and on and on and on. In this passage, it gets weird because this is his second missionary journey, and Paul is raring to go. He knows his calling. He knows his mission. He knows his purpose. He knows exactly what he's supposed to do, uh, but he can't do it. Everywhere he goes, it's like the doors are closing. The Holy Spirit is saying, no, not there. No, not there. Um, he, he's on the road, but every single turn is a dead end, and he's just wandering. And this, this is traveling on foot, and we're talking, you know, there, it's only a few verses, but this is a slow, arduous uh, travel and, and, a, and a really dry season for Paul that, that he hadn't really known up to this point. Like every time I read that passage, my heart aches because I have felt this. I wanted to plant a church from before Esther and I got married, um, in, in like the vague sense, in like uh, it would be awesome to plant a church somewhere. Originally, it was going to be Florida. I don't know why. Then I went to Florida, and Florida is an armpit. Like it is way too humid for me. Like it's like living in an armpit. And if you're from Florida, I didn't mean that to be an armpit. <laughs> I've been there. It's it is it is it was miserable. And they were like, "Don't step in the grass. The ants will eat you." And I was like, "Where am I? That the grass is bad. Like I can't. Yeah, it's not for me. So." It tells you how wrong I can be. I thought I was going to live there. Um, but I knew that I was supposed to plant a church. Uh, and in the fall of 1999, um, and uh, I, was, I knew for a fact, like Esther and I were doing a study, and I actually brought in the page once um, because I wanted to plant a church. Esther did not. And so I've got this page. One of those things where you do the Bible study, then you journal a little bit about what you did. And I've got in like bold letters, God, I know what you're telling me to do, but she won't do it. You'll have to change her heart. <laughs> and, uh, and so it still sits on my desk, just uh, as kind of a funny reminder. But, um, but I was ready. I was all in. I was 100%. I knew what I was supposed to do. I was 100% ready to do it. 
Um, and I sat like that for like 18 years uh, before we planted Open Table. And so I, I know what is going on in Paul when he's like, I know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and, and nothing's happening. I'm just sitting here doing nothing. Um, and I didn't just sit and wait, of course. I continued to read, continued to study, um, continued to serve like crazy wherever I was going to church. But when Paul talks about running into all these closed doors, I can feel that. I know what that's like. Um, because of the vision Paul had given, uh, God had given Paul, he had this vision of somebody in Europe. And the gospel at this point had not gone to Europe. It had not crossed the Mediterranean. It was all in the, in the Asia Minor area in the Middle East up to this point. He has this vision of somebody in, in, in Europe going, come help us. And so Paul gets on a boat, risks his life, um, goes to Europe. And the first city he lands in is Philippi. And, uh, and I don't know if the people of Philippi were just great people um, or if they just happened to hit it right with Paul, if they were just kind of kindred spirits, or if Paul is just relieved to be out of this dry season and finally with some people doing something, uh, if that's why he immediately bonded with the, with the Philippians. But Paul had this closeness with this church that seems to transcend what he experienced with any other churches. Uh, and wherever Paul went um, from this point on, Paul talks about it quite often, um, the, the Philippians sent him money and, and took care of him. Like there's times when Paul even tells the Corinthian church, man, a church in Macedonia, which is Philippi, that they took care of me and they're poor. Like and you guys are rich and don't do anything. Like this stuck with Paul. So they weren't a wealthy church, but they always took care of him. Um, and all these circumstances kind of coalesces to form a bond that just oozes from every word of this book. It's a short book. When you get home, you should, should read it with this in mind, with, that, with, with Paul's emotions in mind. And this being the place that Paul uh, landed up his dry season, the care and support they shared back and forth with him, and of course the fact that the gospel um, sat smack dab in the re- middle of the relationship, I think um, all comes together to make this connection um, that honestly I aspire to here. Um, because many of you know, uh, it, it feels good to fall in love like this, like, like Paul does with Philippians. Um, Esther and I Years ago, limped into a small group. Like, there's no other way to put it. Um, we had gotten kind of our guts kicked out um, at the by some church leadership at the church that we had poured some blood, sweat, and tears into. Um, and the worst part was that we still totally loved the church, and so we didn't want to uh, to do any damage on the way out. You know, we didn't want to make a mess, um, and so we just kind of ate all that pain and started limping. And we were hurting. Um, and I was working with Doug, and, and he saw my limp and invited me into this small group of people who loved each other and studied the Bible together and prayed for each other. Um, and it was kind of all we could do to drag ourselves back into the risk of fellowship. Um, but we did. And from there, the relationships that were formed in that group, um, as people loved on us and we loved on people, um, was kind of like Esther and my little Philippians. Like we, we were in a dry and painful season and just kind of landed in that place. And that was the group that, that um, formed Open Table. That was the group from which Open Table was born. Uh, and many of you came into this group of Open Table limping, carrying wounds from past church experiences or just from life beating you up. Um, and even, even having experienced it myself and even having watched Paul and and the Philippians demonstrated in the Bible. I'm still shocked at how quickly 
um, you can fall in love with people and get attached to people um, when the very act of meeting each other feels more like finding each other, like, like I needed these people. Um, and so I offer that entire setup because as you read the, the book of Philippians, you have to know that this isn't a book of kind of a theological treatise like Paul wrote for the Romans. Um, and it's not a book of correction of errors like Galatians and Corinthians. It's not a universal letter that's just supposed to bounce from church to church to church like Ephesians and Colossians. And it's not a, like a personal guide for discipleship like Timothy and Titus. Um, don't get me wrong, this book is full of good theology like any good relationship is. If you've got a good relationship around Jesus, you're going to talk about theology and it's going to be good stuff. But this is a love letter. This is Paul talking to some people he really, really cared about. And it, it kind of um, colors everything you read in this book, that this is really affectionate people. This is like a letter to your BFF. Um, and when you read it, you have to think of someone communicating to people that he absolutely loves and trusts, and it's in everything. So we're going to read this, uh, this morning's text. Um, I think I forgot to put the reference, but it's Philippians 3, um, and, uh, and it reads like this. Uh, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things. And I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on Christ, what Christ Jesus has done. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, I indeed, or indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake... I have discarded everything else, counted it as garbage, so that I could uh, gain Christ and become one, of, one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want, you to, know, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not sure if you're counting, um, but the number of times Paul in this series um, has hammered home the point that we are saved by grace and not by any effort on our part is really starting to add up. I swear I'm taking these passages straight from the lectionary. Um, I'm, and I'm not like stacking these up just to make a point that I'm trying to make. This is what's given to me. Um, Paul starts out in this passage warning against like a particular type of person. Um, Paul uh, had a major issue with, the, with these people in, in his church. They were called Judaizers, and they were, um, we've discussed them quite a bit in here. Um, they had this belief that once you get saved, by believing in this Jewish Messiah, it only made sense for you to become a Jew. Um, I mean, from their perspective, Yahweh was a Jewish God. He was not a Greek or Roman God. He was not Zeus. He was not you know, uh, uh, Hermes, the, he's the, Jew, the Jewish God. Um, so you wouldn't just put Jesus in the pantheon with Zeus and Poseidon and Apollo and Ares and Aphrodite and all the others. No, 
those were Greek gods for Greeks, and, uh, and Jesus was a Jewish god, and you worship him as a Jew. And so, uh, so they encouraged all newly converted Gentile Christians who put their faith in Jesus and believed Jesus to convert to Judaism um, by getting circumcised. That's how you converted to Judaism. So this crew, yeah, wouldn't that be it? Do an altar call. And then we've got a surgeon. We've got a surgeon right back here in the back room. Um, thank God for baptism. Um, so this crew would follow Paul from town to town. And once Paul had kind of moved on to the next town, um, and he was no longer there to like absolutely crush them in a theological debate, um, because he had gone on to plant more churches, these folks would swoop in sounding very rational and very convincing um, to, to instruct people that now that they were saved, they weren't all the way saved until they converted to Judaism, because that's how you worship a Jewish God. Um, and although we uh, no longer feel the urge to live the Jewish lives, you know, most of us enjoy bacon and, and uh, wear mixed fabrics and all kinds of things, um, I think mentally this idea still exists. Um, this is the grace and crowd. So, grace and. Um, it's a crowd that says, yes, I believe in the grace of God. Um, I, I believe that nothing saves me but the grace of God, but now that you're saved... You have to do A, B, and C. Like, it's the grace plus. Grace and. And wow, is this sneaky, right? See, none of us really believe that we get to heaven by our own actions. Like, that's, that's pretty common in the church. I mean, great, the grace message has been preached long enough, and we pretty much all know, um, at least on the surface, that we're only saved by faith in Jesus. Like, we're only saved by the grace of God. We don't really believe that we have to clean up our act and stop sinning in order to get saved. That, that's, that's pretty basic knowledge. Jesus loves us and saves us. Most of us have come to accept that only Jesus can save our souls. We've heard and seen enough stories of, of the length of God's arm to save the worst of sinners like me and, and, to, and to pull us out. We believe that the grace of God can go anywhere. But, that's the big word. Once you are saved, once you accept that free grace of God through faith, once you are in the family, once Paul has moved on to the next city, in comes the rules, right? That now, now there's, the, there's the but. Back then it was circumcision. Now that you are saved, if you want to be really saved, you have to be circumcised. Now it's, you know, now that you're saved, here's, here's the rules. And thank God it's not circumcision, but boy, that same spirit exists. Congratulations on being saved. Here's your rule book. It, Bears a remarkable resemblance to the old rule book. <laughs> so, uh, really, nothing's changed. And, and Paul is warning about that tendency. He says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Or we worship by the Spirit of God, or we who worship by the Spirit of God um, are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on Christ, what Christ Jesus has done. We put no confidence in human effort. And now, this is where i got to add some nuance to this idea because my conversation this week has revealed to me that I've not done a great job of explaining how this works. Um, there's, there is absolutely nothing you must do to be saved other than put your faith in Jesus Christ, that his sacrificial death actually does save you. Um, and that's it, period. You can do whatever you want. In fact, if, if, you are, if you are sinning 
and and someone tells you to stop sinning, um, and you uh, stop sinning so that you can go to heaven, then heaven is only because of something you did. And the Bible is quite clear that that's not how it works. So if, if, if the reason you stop sinning is so that you can somehow now be a Christian, you've already blown it. That is not how it works. If you were to do that, your actions would be what saved you. And the Bible, Paul makes it very clear. We put no confidence in human effort. None. I would have zero impact. Only faith in Jesus saves you. But being a Christian is more than sin management. It's, it's, it's not religion. This is not a set of rules we follow or a liturgical system by which we can perform the proper rite or ritual or pray the right prayer or recite the right words to get into heaven. That's not how it works. This is a relationship with Jesus, the very Son of God who lit, comes to live inside you and that will change everything. Everything. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach for a second. Can I preach? I teach a lot, but I have, to, I have to preach for a second. If you honestly believe that the God who, who, who parts seas and calls fire from heaven and dumps plagues on Egypt, if you honestly believe the God who calls prophets and sends manna to the wilderness and quail and water from a rock, if you honestly believe that the God who, does, who raises the dead and, and, and cures the sick and, and, and delivers the oppressed, if you honestly believe that God can come into your life in any real and substantial way and not change you, then I have some oceanfront property in Edgerton, Kansas I really want to sell you. Because God will change you. He will. We're talking about a relationship with a very real, very powerful, very amazing God, and you do not get to have that kind of relationship and stay the same. You just don't. It's, it would be completely illogical to even assume that you can just kind of factor real Christianity into your life and keep on living however you want. That's not how it works. When you become a follower of Jesus, your life will change. I might say on a regular basis that grace is so grace that you can do anything you want and it cannot affect the grace of God. As Luther said, sin boldly, but believe in Christ more boldly. I believe that with all my heart. But when the God of the universe comes to live in your heart, you will change. And even crazier, you will want to change. That's the nutty part. That's the cosmic joke. You can finally sin as much as you want. Once you have your faith in Christ, you can finally sin as much as you want, and the Holy Spirit won't let you. The Holy Spirit will come in and convict you and make you want to do better. Suddenly you want to, and, and, and it hits a point, like everybody's afraid if you say, once you put your faith in Christ, you can do whatever you want. They're afraid if you do that, people are going to use it as an excuse to just go do whatever they want. But the funny catch is, once you truly put your faith in Christ, you won't want to anymore. Now your, your sins will bug you. Now you, now you feel bad when you do stuff. And you want to change. And suddenly you're sitting there going, how do I, how do I fix this? I don't want this in my life anymore. Now you're calling out to God and crying out to God, God, help me with this. I don't want to be like this. 
And people were worried that if you say you can do whatever you want, you're just going to, oh, sweet, I'm going to sin all day long. I've never known anybody who believes in the grace of God who does that. I've never known anybody who puts their faith in the real grace of God and then just uses the excuse to go run and do whatever they want. That's not how it works. I'm so off my notes. Sorry, Brett. When I get off track, he's like, I don't know where he is. I I hope the next slide comes up at the right time because... I'm going to find it. And I honestly think, there it is. And I honestly think this is where... <laughs> I honestly think this is where we get caught up. <laughs> we want a game that has set rules, right? We want to know where the boundary markers are. We want tools that have well-understood purposes so that we know how to use them. Except relationships don't work that way. Tell me one genuine relationship you have that works that way. And this is a relationship. Whatever else we might call it, however else we might practice it, this is a relationship. And I don't believe the Holy Spirit works the same way with every relationship, with every person. As I was chatting this week, things like K-Love and Christian T-shirts, my friend who absolutely trusts in the grace of God, reminded me that the Holy Spirit uses Caleb and T-shirts as tools in their life to not only experience the grace of God, but spread it. I tend to use beer. I know that sounds weird, but I've had some great conversations with people about God where everything was stiff and, and, and awkward, and they were afraid I was going to push them. I was like, you want to get a beer? And we just wind up going in the deep things of God over a beer. It's a, and it's a tool. And I know, I say that to people, and they're like, there's just no way that's how that works. I, I don't know why God's able to do that in my life. <laughs> there it is. And why wouldn't that be true? Esther and I have friends like that. We're foodies. We love food. Surprise. Yeah, we're... And we have friends that will sit down over a charcuterie board with fancy cheeses and sip a little glass of wine, and talk for hours. And we have other friends where we look for, like, the dirtiest diner drive-ins and dives, some ethnic food hole in the wall, you know, that, that is just... And, and, and what's funny is I could never picture sitting in that place. We used to go to this Indian restaurant that was in, like, a... Uh, no, the Middle Eastern restaurant. It was in, like, a grocery. And it was just this, this small little kind of buffet-ish kind of thing, and you sat at these rickety table, and the food was so good. And I mean, it was, you didn't touch anything while you were in there. It was dirty. But the food was so good. And my charcuterie board friends, I can't imagine sitting in that place and eating with them. And, and vice versa. Like, of course relationships play out different. You have different friends you do different things with. If someone comes into our life like a, a Judaizer and tells you, now that you're a Christian... You have to listen to Caleb, and you have to wear the t-shirts, and you have to do the things. Now that you're a Christian, grace and. Paul would say, if they, if they put you in a t-shirt, like this one, but this is fun. Maybe, there it is. Yeah, those, those kind of t-shirts, right? Or this one, how about this? Want a, want a taco about Jesus? See, I would wear that one, I love tacos and puns, that would be great. We should start a thing where you send me the cheesiest shirts you can find and I'll wear them on stage. But if someone tells you that now that you're a Christian, now that you've put your faith in God, that's, your, that's, how you, that's what comes next. 
Paul would say, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil. And, and, if someone comes along and, and tells you that now that you're a Christian, all that legalist, legalist, stuffy Christian stuff like Caleb and t-shirts, no, you gotta do the cool thing like social justice and, and being all things to all men. Now that you're a Christian, here's how you live it out. Here's what that looks like. Paul would say the same thing. Watch out for those dogs. Those people who do evil. Because this is a relationship. And relationships look different. And the Holy Spirit knows what you need in order to be more like Jesus. For one person, it, it might be some rules. God may lay on your heart that you need to do things differently and you need to put up some barriers that, that help you stay on track. You might need to announce to the world that you belong to Jesus. And wearing a t-shirt that, that says it helps you. Or maybe it's a cross around your neck. Do I still have my cross? Yeah. Some people need the constant encouragement of Christian radio and scripture memorization cards sitting around the house. And if that's you, my only advice is to obey the Holy Spirit. Never, especially if somebody like me who's 95% goofball, you know, makes you feel bad about that. Man, ditch me in a second. Obey the Holy Spirit. Do the things and do not stop doing them until the Holy Spirit tells you. And if someone else, uh, to, to someone else, the Holy Spirit might say, you're too attached to the rules. They're getting in your way. You're trusting in rules instead of trusting in me. You don't find me that way. You're using the rules as a crutch to avoid the tension of messy humans. I'm talking about me here. You need to spend time with some ugly sinners and you need to go to the homeless camps and listen to their stories until you feel like you're just as messed up as they are. And because this is not a religion, it's a relationship, both are 100% right. And both sides in completely different atmospheres without either side feeling like they have to earn something to please God or, or gain His favor. They find themselves desiring to avoid the things that the Bible says to avoid and to, and to embrace the things the Bible says to embrace. And the path to life fits. And they barely even notice that that's what they're trying to do because they're just obeying what the Holy Spirit tells them and following Jesus. As different as those paths might look, both believers stand where Paul says when they said, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Both sides say that. And what I love is Paul goes on to list the things that he could take pride in uh, if that was how grace worked. Which again, I think he's only comfortable doing because these are his people. These are, you know, he can talk like this because these are his people. But this week I got into a discussion about language. And it was really fascinating because both of us were in essence bragging, if you want to say that. We'll use the word testifying so it sounds better. About the way that God has changed our speech. It sounded like Paul, because my friend was like, I used to use filthy words all the time. And I took no thought of how I talked. And Jesus changed that in me. And, and, and like Paul, though I could glory in it, I'm mostly just grateful that it's, I'm not like that anymore. 
I don't talk like that anymore. And I was like, same here. I used to belittle people with my words. I, and it, it wasn't even about cuss words. I used to debate and I used to try to make people feel small with my words. And my words brought way more death than life. And I feel like Jesus has saved me and my speech was a huge part of that. And I could glory in that, but mostly I'm just grateful that Jesus changed my speech. And I still use spicy words, but I still feel like he has completely changed my speech. And even though the two of us like don't use the same words at all, we both take Paul's warning in Ephesians 4, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. We both take that verse totally seriously. It's one of my like daily, I need to watch my speech today, let no corrupt communication come out of my mouth. And then I'll drop a four-letter word, because that doesn't even <coughs> hit me that way. But I take it very seriously when I talk to my kids, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. When I talk to my wife, when I talk to my friends, be encouraging with your words, speak faith. Speak life. Don't speak discouragement, death, and doubt. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. And I beat myself up with it all the time because I take it seriously because I feel like he, God has changed my speech and I'm grateful. And I put no, con, no, no, no confidence in human effort. I want the Holy Spirit to help me. And after Paul gives this little list of the things that he could brag on if he was into that kind of thing, uh, and we all have that list, right? We all have that list kind of locked and loaded. If we wanted to, if we want to make a list of how hard we've worked for Jesus, the changes that we've made, the things we've given up to be a good Christian, the rest of our spiritual pedigree, we all have the list ready. And like Paul, we tend to sneak it into the conversation every once in a while, make sure people know. But after sharing his list, Paul kind of drops the punchline of this morning's method uh, message. Or his, his passage. I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counted it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that I, that one way or another I'll experience a resurrection from the dead. And I think this is the crux of this kind of messy tension that arises whenever we talk about what it means to live the Christian life. This is what I wish I knew how to talk about as well as Paul did. Last week we talked about how Jesus kind of collides with our purpose. And this is so similar to that, but it's actually much deeper. I think Jesus wants to collide with our motivations. And, and the reason I wish I knew how to discuss this better is because most of us don't even know how to talk about, let alone fight about, our motivations. We talk about process. We love to debate process. We argue over how, how we should worship. We argue over what we should wear. We argue over what we should eat or drink. We argue over how we should vote or who we should and shouldn't include in, in our communities, what words are ex- acceptable and which ones aren't, whether or not Christians can speak in tongues or not, or a million other things. At the end of the day, those things are the how. Those are the process. Paul dives into this message getting into the why. Why we do them. 
And his motivation is clear. that So that I could gain Christ and become one with him. That's Paul's why. That's his motivation. Anything else that comes, whether it's, whether it's I, need to, I need to live a more strict and disciplined life, or, man, these rules are keeping me from Christ, I need to let them go. Whichever side, the why is what matters. Paul, as a strictly adherent Jew, knew that his focus on the rules, the law, his own effort, was his motivation for getting up in the morning and doing what he did. As a Jew, my performance is my why. And he hit a point where he, he was willing to scrap all of that if he had to, to be closer to Jesus. Others wake up in the morning to indulge their flesh, to enjoy pleasure and leisure, and the Holy Spirit will move them to abandon that lifestyle, to count it all as garbage that they may gain Christ. The Holy Spirit will change that. Anything, anything other than Christ that is our motivation. And the Holy Spirit will call us to sacrifice that thing. Jesus told a couple short parables in Matthew 13 about what it was like to, to do what Paul is talking about here. These are in Matthew 14, verses 44 to 46. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hit it again, sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on a lookout for, for choice pearls. And he discovers a pearl of great value. And he sold everything he owned and bought it. This is a parabolic form of exactly what Paul just said. I count it all as garbage that I might gain Christ. Paul found a pearl so beautiful that he would sell everything he owned, in his case, his spiritual pedigree, to gain that pearl. This is what I wish I was better at talking about. Not, do you do this or do you avoid that? But, how has finding the great pearl changed your life? Because it will. What have you counted as garbage now that you've found Jesus? And actually, we can ask each other those questions, but the answers found in our stories. And stories take time. And stories take relationship. You can't look at my life and see how much God has changed uh, me and how much Jesus has become my motivation by taking a snapshot. And being a preacher doesn't count because I love doing this. Like, you can't go, well, of course he loves Jesus. He's a preacher. No, I like doing this. This is fun for me. I'm a nerd, and I love to study Scripture. I love to share it with people. This is, a gig- this is not a gigantic sacrifice for me to do that. We've made sacrifices, don't get me wrong, but this is, this is not. I truly love being, being your pastor. But you can't capture my why, my motivation, unless you take time to hear my story and spend time with me and get to know me. And I can't know why you do what you do unless I listen to your history and 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 what God is doing in your life right now and how those things work together and how He's moving in you. And that takes time and that takes relationship. And that's why we love rules and expectations and cookie-cutter patterns to follow because we don't have to take the time to share stories and get to know each other. It's so much easier to judge each other on on 
a basic list of, of gen generic criteria. But Paul takes the time to share his story, where he comes from, why he used to do the things he did, where that life took him, and of course, how he's different now. And it's ironic because in a few verses after Paul's passage today, he says this in Ephesians 3.13, he says, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. This guy who quotes his past more than almost anybody else I know says, I have forgotten the past. Move forward. And he said, he literally says, I forget. He forgets the past, even as he's recalling it to his friends. And this is the great mystery that I think Christian counseling is starting to uncover. Neuroscience is starting to uncover, which is fun because Paul knew it 2,000 years ago. You don't forget or move on from your past until you revisit it and share it. You don't just lock it away and, and forget it that way. The way you forget it is by going back there. The way you stop living in it is by actually going back there and dealing with it. The way that Paul forgot his past was to, and to, so, so that he could press on to what lies ahead was he walked through it and shared it with his friends like ten verses ago. You don't leave your past behind by ignoring it and pretending it didn't happen. You leave it behind by incorporating it into your story. It becomes your testimony. The book of Revelation says they overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. By owning their story. By that story becoming part of them, they were able to use it to overcome the enemy. And this is what, uh, what it means to find that pearl of great price. To sell everything for that. What Jesus wants to collide with this week is, is you and me. Like the center of you, the heart of you, your motivation, your pearl, your treasure. What in the world is so precious, so valuable, that you would sell everything, sacrifice anything for it? The whole Jewish story started with a man named Abraham who had a promised son that he had waited so long for. Isaac was his everything. Even his relationship with God was wrapped up in that. Because God had promised it to him. And, and, and he waited 25 years for it. And God came through. Like his whole faith system is hinging on this son. It's all built in together. And God asked Abraham to sacrifice it. And God didn't want Isaac dead, of course. We know the story. He just wanted to ask Abraham that question. Abraham, what is your pearl of great price? And Abraham answered, you are God. I count everything else as garbage. And the awesome thing was Abraham got Isaac and God. And I believe that God still asks that same question. It requires those same sacrifices Today, not to get into heaven. That's by grace. In fact, if you want to get right down to it, I think all of this is by grace, but I'm not going to muddy the waters. God still asks each and every one of us, what is the most important thing in the world to you? Paul gives his answer in today's passage. 
And now it's our turn to answer. So how do we respond to this? Esther and I are kind of funny um, when it comes to our approach to faith. My kind of nerdy, analytical, theological approach to God leaves Esther cold and bored silly. Like, that's not how she... Esther's drawn to God by poetry and imagery and experience. She reads through the Bible every year and has for years and years and years, and, and uh, it never fails. Um, whenever she hits the prophets, you know, God does this some crazy work in her hearts when she gets to the prophets. All of this nutty, poetic language that to me seems like it's all drug-induced um, symbols and, and weird imagery. And God grabs Esther's heart and speaks to her soul in the midst of all that. My head is a constant debate. Never ending. I try not to debate with people anymore. I mostly have that under control, but I've, I've not yet learned how to quiet the one that's going on up here. It's never ending. It's always playing in my head. Hundreds of theological questions and really good evidence for each side, constantly battling in my brain and all that complexity and that steady stream of words and themes and logical progressions inspire me to the greatness of God. If I felt like I could figure God out, and I'm still trying, but if I feel like I can figure God out, he would be too small. And so somehow the more I can bend these, these thoughts and the farther they go and the deeper and crazier they get, the bigger God feels to me. And I'm inspired toward God in the midst of all this nerddom. It captures my soul. Esther feels God's embrace through safety and boundaries. She likes rules and feels protected by them rather than constricted. She sounds like David glorifying God for the beauty and protection of his precepts. Esther finds deep grace in God's law. And the cross removes the weight of obligation from the law, but allows her to settle comfortably into the provision of God's word. I feel completely different toward the law. I feel like the law reveals my wickedness and drives me groping to the cross. Like the law has this giant spotlight on me, forcing my attention to how bad I need the cross of Jesus Christ to exist. God's precepts pin me down like a bug. There's no comfort in it. <laughs> but they drive me to Christ and to the cross. Open and exposed before the probing view of the Spirit, like a fire that kind of sears me to the point where the cross is what soothes my soul. We almost literally could not be any more different in our approach to God. And yet we have this great spiritual life together. We talk about Jesus all the time. and We talk about our faith together all the time. She is my constant spiritual companion. And the reason for that is however differently we get there, we both want Jesus more than anything else in the world. And though we approach him very, very differently, we both know that the other one wants Jesus. We chase Jesus together and we both know that everything else is garbage compared to knowing Christ. She has her way, I have my way, and, and we both really just want to know Christ. And that's enough for us. And So the way I would love to respond to this message is Lent kind of draws closer and closer to resurrection. It's to wrestle with this question. What is your Isaac? What is my pearl of Great price. If God asked me today to start sacrificing stuff, what would be the hardest thing to, to, to do? What would be the hardest thing to part with? I'm not going to act, ask you to actually start sacrificing stuff. 
But I do think it's important to ask God to search our hearts and show us what's in there. Because I don't think we even know most of the time. I think we need to ask the Spirit to dig around a bit and help us to walk with Him with a garbage bag in hand. God, what do I need to pitch in? Anything getting in the way of knowing Jesus better, my advice, toss it. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like selling everything you have just to purchase a single treasure. So this morning as we gather around the table and sing one last song, don't, don't change anything, don't do anything. I never want you to respond just off a compelling message, but wrestle with that question. What would it look like for me to be all in? What would it look like if I were all in? What would my life be like, my real life, my everyday life, if I were that guy who found that treasure in the field? What would would change in my world if I was that dude who found a crazy valuable pearl and, and the only way I could have it was if I gave up everything for it? What would that look like in my life? What does it mean for me for knowing Jesus to be the center of my universe? the one thing that everything else revolves around. Then, and here's the important part, ask the Holy Spirit to take step number one, whatever that is for you. Make a change. Maybe don't change everything all at once. Maybe don't sell everything. If if you're feeling that in your head, let's talk first, because I did something wrong. Don't go sell everything. But ask yourself that question. What? What's step number one for me being all in? Holy Spirit, I don't know that I'm ready to dive in head first, but I need a, I need a first step toward being all in because I want to be all in. <laughs>